This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking keep your morals strong and you'll never go wrong. We're talking, listen, you don't have AIDS or anything, do you? And we're talking, ain't no skin off my tits. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, (laughs) what are you looking for, Angela? A gun? No. A drill. (laughs) Oh, the one-liners in this movie. So many one-liners. Everyone, we are discussing Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers. So hopefully you've already listened to our episode on the original Sleepaway Camp that we did last summer, and now we're making a return to camp. A different camp, though, mind you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go fuck yourself, Camp Arawak. We're talking Camp Rolling Hills for its 35th anniversary, Trace. Oh, my God. Oh, so I guess that means we're doing Sleepaway Camp 3 for its 35th anniversary next year, because these were filmed back-to-back. Yeah, like a week apart, but also... Maybe not. This this was fine, but I am also very worried that this is going to be a somewhat slight episode because even though this film has a trans villain slash protagonist, I'm worried that there just isn't too much here. I have a similar concern to the point where when I was watching this, I was like, oh, shit, maybe we should have just double featured two and three. Um, Mm -hmm. But but here's the thing. I I don't know if you remember this, but when we did Sleepaway Camp last year, I talked about how much I loved the sequels to these films. Yes. Granted, I have only seen each of these films once um, Mm -hmm. way back when. And at the time when I saw these, oh, this is probably like five years ago, maybe six years ago. Okay. I wasn't a huge fan of the original, and I think that our conversation last year really helped me kind of get on board with a lot of what the original film was trying to do, but also mm-hmm. what it wasn't trying to do, but it ended up doing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all of that. Go back and listen, folks. And I will confess that the sequel, Sleepaway Camp 2, it wasn't as impressive to me on a second viewing, but I do think mm-hmm. on that first viewing, it was very much like, a, oh, this one really feels like it knows what it's doing, which oh yeah. I, do think it does which is why i liked it so much more than that original film absolutely however i do think yeah there's a lot more layers to the original film whereas there aren't really i'm saying this now Mm -hmm. there aren't really too many layers to the second film even though i still think it's a really fun time it is a fun time yes uh you know this is a very different beast in terms of this is not trying to be scary this is a very self-aware horror comedy coming I mean, not that much later than the original, so it's kind of surprising that this film openly acknowledges, oh no, we're kind of making a bit of a farce. Very much so. And again, on that level, I appreciate it. Do I think it's a really intelligent film? Not particularly, but do I think that they were trying to make an intelligent film? 
No, I think they were trying to make a quick buck and also have a lot of fun while making it. And okay. I, I do think that fun translates over to the viewer while you're watching this. Right. Yeah. I don't think people are walking away from this movie having really heady conversations yeah. about oh, the nature <laughs> of gender and that kind of stuff. But they probably are saying, oh, OK, Sleepaway Camp 2, you saw a bunch of slasher movies and you kind of know your shit. Yeah. And so but I kind of agree with you. I'm a little worried that Sleepaway Camp 3 is going to be more of the same, which mm-hmm. is, isn't bad sure. if you're watching it. But if you're trying to make two podcast episodes out of it, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> what we're basically saying is if anyone is a huge advocate and defender of the third one, do let us know. Because, yeah, we both see number three. But from our recollection, it's kind of just more of the same. Yeah. So so, so you had seen the sequel before then, right? I have, yes. I've actually done an audio commentary on this film with former guest Brian Christopher over on Daily Dead. Oh, okay. So what was this your second time watching it? Your 50th yes. time watching it? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I guess third time because I watched it twice for that audio commentary and then I watched it once to prepare for this. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. I love this history lesson. Um <laughs> Well, okay. Well, let's talk about how this film came to be. I will say, though, that I do have the Scream Factory blues of Mm -hmm. watching the whole trilogy. And I think I think the sequels are out of print right now. Yeah, I remember this one being hard to get. Yeah. But nevertheless, if you got it, save it and scalp it. Don't scalp it. That's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, Trace. Well said. Anyway, okay, so yeah, the first Sleepaway Camp, you know, was a uh, 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 1983 slasher film, and in 1986, that film's writer-director, Robert Hiltzik, uh, he wrote a script for part two, and he sent the script to Jerry Silva, who was his producing partner on that original film. Unfortunately for Hiltzik, though, Silva thought that his script was too dark. It was taking itself mm. far too seriously, right. and he wanted to take this into a more comedic direction, so he asked Hiltzik if he could buy the rights for the franchise and basically get the okay to do two and three because it sounded like the plan was to do two and three back to back from the get-go. Oh, interesting. But it would have been in a much more serious vein if the original guy had have had his way. Yeah, I couldn't really figure out if like it was like that kind of a Kevin Williamson and Scream situation where he mm. turns in a draft for two and he's like, hey, but this is where I want to go for three. So if you sure. want to like be smart budget wise, we can do them back to back. But I'm not going to write three until you okay all of this shit. Right. And instead they said, that's a great idea, but also goodbye because we want to take things in a different direction. Which, again, I mean, look, yes, the the first film is definitely a bit more serious than these Mm -hmm. films because it's, well, again, I say it's not really trying to be jokey. But again, y'all go back and listen. Those Aunt Martha scenes are something. Boy, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So faced with, I guess, a pseudo dilemma, um, but Hiltzik had just started law school and a family. So Oh, that's right. He became a lawyer. I forgot about that detail. Yeah. And so rather than go back to the drawing board, he was like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah, here. I can. I will sell you the rights to sleep when mm-hmm. we can. So that is exactly what he did. Law school is expensive, y'all. <laughs> well, so Double Helix Films was the production company for Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3. And I couldn't figure out if this was Silva's company or if it's an outside party, but I do think it was Silva's company. Hmm. Okay. After Double Helix secured the rights, they negotiated a deal with Nelson Entertainment to sell off the domestic rights to them in exchange for the budget of the movies. So Double Helix retained the international rights, which was where they made their profit. But an executive at Nelson wanted a man named Fritz Gordon to write the sequels. And, okay, (laughs) does this name sound familiar to you at all, Joe? 
I mean, it sounds like a gag name, but no. Well, so there you go. You are right. This is a gag name. I I think. So here we Hmm. go. So Fritz is a beginning screenwriter, but here's the thing. If you do a little bit of digging, you will see that Fritz Gordon is actually a pseudonym for writer and actor and producer Michael Hitchcock. And Joe, you and I know him, well, A, uh, from Craziest Girlfriend. He was not only a producer and a writer in that show, but he also acted in that show as one of uh, Rebecca's, like, uh, lawyer friend people. Oh, right. Yes. But he's also famous because he's in a lot of Christopher Guest comedies. Mm. Hmm. Okay. This is all coming together. Yeah. So I think his thing. So I, IMDb has them as the same person. But when you watch the commentary of this film on the Blu-ray, uh, Fritz Gordon is on there with director Michael A. Simpson and also, oh God, the guy that runs slash operates SleepawayCampFilms.com. The uh, oh right, yeah, you know that, that official website for Sleepaway Camp. Mm-hmm. But they talk about they, they talk to Fritz Gordon, aka Michael Hitchcock, and they. Talk talk about how michael hitchcock was one of the executives at double helix and they they're asking like oh yeah fritz have you ever met michael hitchcock and he's like no i haven't met him ever but you know i i hear he's like kind of a cool guy and wait is it a gag though well that's the thing i can't tell if it's a bit or if it's maybe like some kind of like wga thing where like oh i see he can't like yeah there's some kind of like rule where he can't Mm -hmm. be that name because he nevertheless i don't know Everything I can find says that this is the same person. I just think it's really funny that they treat them as separate people in the commentary for this film. Yeah, you know what? This movie is so in on the joke. I'm going to choose to believe that they are doing a bit because they think it's really funny. I have to think so. They don't laugh during it, but maybe that's part of the bit. (laughs) (laughs) We've been doing this for years. Everybody's just got their parts down pat. Yeah, but um, okay. so yeah, that's Hitchcock slash Mr. Fritz Gordon. Hmm. Nevertheless, they asked Michael A. Simpson, a relatively unknown director, to direct both Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3 back-to-back with filming taking place for both films over a six-week period. And, yeah, it sounds like there was, like, a maybe a week break in between films. Sure. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> um, but knowing that the genre had already played itself out by this point, and, of course, this is 1988, hmm. Simpson wanted to play into the established formula of the genre while still fulfilling expectations of fans, which I think is... That's a really tight rope, right? Like when you're kind of making fun of a genre while also being a love letter to it. Mm-hmm. See also student bodies, which I would argue is kind of treading the same territory. Maybe that one is a bit more out and out comedy because I don't think they're going as hard in the death scenes, but it has the same kind of energy. I agree. I think the only big difference for me is, while I really like student bodies. And again, everyone, previous episode, go listen to it. Um, I do think that that film maybe wears out its welcome a bit, whereas yes. this is a tight 76 minutes on Sleepaway Camp 2. <laughs> this is true. It's a very fast runtime, but it also knows when the fuck to stop. It sure does. But yeah, so he thought that the first film also was filmed a little flatly. So he wanted to make the second film a little bit more stylized. Uh, I... I confess, I don't... <laughs> when, where, where is that movie, then? <laughs> the only sh- scene where I was like, oh, that's really kind of fun and clever, is when Allie and that and Rob are trying to fuck, and mm-hmm. the whole scene is shot from, like, their waist down. Right. I think we also get an image of Allie coming down the outhouse, like, we are from the perspective of right. the shit and piss. And that was kind of the only other moment that really took me by... Okay, that's interesting. It's a novel way to shoot it. Yeah, and to be fair, I, I do agree with his opinion that the first one was shot pretty flatly, but I true. 
I also kind of think it applies to this film. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard when you're making a feature film. And yes, folks, even though this is brief, it is a feature. It feels like we shot this in a very short time on a very tight budget. Like, it doesn't feel like we had a lot of time to set up for extra scenes or second or third takes. Absolutely. Now, that being said, though, do I think this film is shot poorly? No. No, I think it's just shot... um, It's perfunctory. Perfunctory. There you go. Thank you. That's the exact word I was going to (laughs) say. I'm sure it was. Uh, But yeah, so he was also intrigued by the idea of a post-op transgender person being the star and villain of the film. I will say in his interviews, he says that he thinks this is the first time this has ever been done. Um, No. Yeah, (laughs) maybe he's thinking post-op, but even then, Mm. I don't think this is the first instance of a post-op. I mean, I, I can't tell you what it would be, but I just... I don't know. That seems like it's an incorrect statement. Right. This one might be one where we kick it back to listeners because I have a feeling somebody's going to come up with something. It could apply to North American films. Uh, Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, again, we'd have to go through a bunch of B-movies and Grindhouse movies to look at any kind of like gender-flipped, evil transgender person (laughs) and be like, oh, are they pre-op or post-op? Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> Ready for that homework? That's that. That's another podcast entirely. Right. But yeah, so uh, when it comes to casting, it's all pretty standard. They apparently did, uh, well, they brought in Felissa Rose, the original mm-hmm. Angela from that first film, to do uh, a read. And she wasn't nailing the comedy bits of Angela uh, in this film. Okay. Um, I don't, also, she was either just about to start college or she was already in college. And because they were going to be shooting in Georgia instead of New York, like they did the first film, Mm. I don't think it worked out for her. So I think it was kind of a combination of, ooh, you're not really getting this part because, let's be real, it is kind of a different part. Very much, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, but I think the schedule was kind of their, their way out. Yeah, because if memory serves correct, she was, I want to say, 13 on that first film. So she would be right at the age where she's wrapping up high school, going into college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you don't want to defer and then go into a part that, A, you're not really sure if it's going to take off, but B, if it's just not feeling right. Yeah, 100%. And so they go through a bunch of, like, like a whole casting process. And there's something really interesting, but Pamela Springsteen, of course, sister of Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. was one of the last ones they saw. And she was just uh, perfect for the role. There we go. She is pretty solid. She's She anchors this film admirably. Yeah, I actually wish she had done more, but she's now um, a very, very famous uh, still photographer. Oh, wow. Good for her. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, filming began on September 20th and wrapped on October 9th of 1987. Uh, Again, we're looking at that six-week shoot of back-to-back films. I don't have a budget for this, uh, but in the commentary, the director says that the budget for this film wouldn't cover a per diem on a Friday the 13th film. (laughs) (laughs) The shade, the shade of it all. (laughs) Which, I mean, truthfully, like, I I can kind of see it. (laughs) Sure. I mean, you got to think your biggest expense for this is probably just your actors and then the setting, but I'm imagining that they just shot it at a working camp with those dates. That would have been after the summer rush. So we roll in here, everything's yep. ready to go. Two movies, six week, bam, bam, we're out. Exactly. And they kind of had everything mapped out too, where like they knew how far they can go into the woods and all this kind of shit. So it seems like they, they their pre-production, they had gotten a lot done to make this film shoot as uh, efficient as possible. Hmm. There we go. But yeah, so like Sleepaway Camp, uh, Sleepaway Camp 2 was released theatrically on a very limited basis. And hmm. this would have been on August 26th, 1988. 
it must have been so limited because I could not find any box office numbers for this film. Like, it might as well be considered a straight-to-DVD film, which honestly, I think for most markets it was. I imagine this was probably like a major, like, New York, L.A. theatrical release. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was direct-to-video, so I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, so basically, uh, two months after it hit theaters, uh, it was released on VHS in the U.S. by Nelson Entertainment. And that, I mean, in today's streaming era, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but Mm y'all... That's fast. (laughs) Yes. Back in the day, it was like six months, sometimes even almost a year before a movie would hit VHS after going to theaters. See, that tells me that they always anticipated that this, even if it did play theatrically in limited release... That tells me that they planned on this being a big VHS rental slash seller. That's that's what I think as well too. I mean, again, right? Because you're already you're basically kickstarting your franchise. The films come out, uh, I think, within a year of each other. Mm-hmm. So, like, cool. Yeah, we're just setting up the franchise row at the blockbuster. Right. Yeah. But yeah, uh, again, no box office information. But review wise, it's fine. Uh, we're looking okay. at a. 55% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 4.5 out of 10. And mm. Letterboxd users have a have been a bit kinder to it, giving it a 5.6 out of 10. Yeah. What do you give this? You know, I, so I, truthfully, I'd given it a 4 back when I saw it five or six okay. years ago. <laughs> it's a little generous. <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Again, this is me coming from, like, I don't get why people love this Sleepaway Camp movie so much. It's not sure. that great. It's kind of dumb, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like going from that to the second one where I was like, oh, this movie knows what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it was Can't like, be, very... it's fun. It's a little trashy. Yeah, I, I, I did downgrade it to a three out of five on this okay. watch. Uh, I, I do find an inherent charm to it. I do think that self-awareness is like very beneficial to it. Mm-hmm. But it's still like kind of a low budget, like, oh, we filmed this in two weeks. <laughs> film. <Yeah. laughs> no, I'm about, yeah, I'm about at the same point yeah. as you. I will say that it seems like I liked the third one less when I watched it a while ago, but I was looking through like some of our Mutual's Letterboxd reviews, and there are a couple who have three higher than two. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Let us know, people. (laughs) Let us know. Okay, before I kick it over to you, I want to say one thing. So again, on this commentary, they're talking about um, how... I I don't know when they would have recorded this, but... They were basically like, oh, yeah, uh, I remember when I Know What You Did Last Summer came out, uh, Fritz Gordon slash Michael Hitchcock was saying that he was getting all these people that were saying, oh, yeah, like, uh, there's an homage to Sleepaway Camp, and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And he went to go see it. He was like, yeah, sure, there are. There's a whole scene where Sarah Michelle Gellar and Jennifer Love Hewitt are talking about, uh, like, horror movies and stuff, and they use fake names, and Sarah Michelle Gellar's name is Angela, and that's the nod to Sleepaway Camp. And I was like, no, no, they're talking (laughs) about Angela Lansbury and Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Which, if you got that based on the fact that you haven't even seen Murder She Wrote, I'm guessing they fucking wrong. They literally they're talking about Murder She Wrote. <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry that might have been a little petty to throw out there, but I heard that and I was like, no, no, <laughs> how dare you, sir? Because I know, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't come at me with trivia about I know what you did last summer. <laughs> now, granted, I will not have the same uh, breadth of knowledge for Sleepaway Camp as the Sleepaway Camp Films website has. But sure, let's go. Let's talk about this thing. Here we go. Okay. So we open on Camper Phoebe, who is played by Heather Binion, and she's telling the story of Camp Arawak from the first sleepaway camp to a group of boys as they sit around a campfire. So very urban legend territory, you know, hey, did you hear the one about the transgender girl who killed a bunch of people at that camp, blah, 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 blah. 
it's a smart way to do this. Sure. This also, and I don't know if this is an homage, but, you know, we get homages to Friday the 13th, to Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff in this film. This is almost the exact same way that Friday the 13th Part 2, or maybe it's three starts. There's definitely a campfire in one of them. But the subversion I like here is that Angela's already part of this group. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, we haven't met her just yet, but she will pop her head in in a moment. So before she shows up, we have everyone around the campfire asking, okay, so what happened to this killer? And this is the film basically giving us a little bit of closure on that twist ending from the first film, right? right? So we have Sean, who is played by Tony Higgins, explaining, and I'm going to use the incorrect pronouns because this is a line from the film. So Sean says, he went into a psycho ward and got a sex change and our parents' taxes paid for it. So, okay, honestly, the taxes line is what I found the most interesting, because Mm -hmm. I don't think this movie's trying to make a lot of commentary, but... Not a ton, but this is definitely it. Yeah, so what what do you think about this kind of closing the book on that first film, and again, kind of re... Do we call this a retcon of Angela? Because I guess it happened between films. Uh, it's definitely moving the character forward. I don't know if this is the filmmakers being savvy enough to recognize that there was outcry from the queer community at the kind of gotcha twist and saying, you know what, we're going to confirm it. We're going to move on. We're, yes, treating Angela as our antagonist, but she's also very much, as you said, the star of this movie. So I appreciate that someone like Sean, who also immediately identifies himself as the son of the police officer who handled the Camp Arawak case, mm-hmm. I can imagine a child of a police officer being a slightly kind of moral conservative where, yeah, he's going to complain that, oh, our tax dollars paid for a gender reassignment surgery. <laughs> so I guess then my question to you is then we have Sean that has this, yeah, the, oh, tax dollars paid for this. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. How do we feel like the film and the writer feels about Angela and uh, being a transgender woman in this film? Do we think it's a positive representation? Is it kind of a gray area or do we think it's a malicious intent? Well, I'm I'm curious. Can we put a pin in it until sure, yeah. Angela herself addresses it? Because sure. I think the language is a little bit telling. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So, yes. Sean says this, and then this is when Angela appears. As you said, she's played by Pamela Springsteen, and she is pissed. She is P-I-S-E-D pissed. that Phoebe <laughs> is at this campfire with the boys because she thinks it's very improper. Yes. Uh, well, actually, okay, so uh, then let's move into the general idea here, right? Because what mm-hmm. Angela has become now is like um, the morality police. Yes. Which, that to me is is the most interesting part of this film, given mm-hmm. that a transgender person, at this time especially, would have been seen as maybe immoral by, by many audiences. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm going to reference one article throughout the episode, not as much as a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Eyes of Laura Mars, but mm-hmm. the piece I'm going to bring in is by Miles D. Knocker, and his article is Let the Monsters Out of the Closet Over Queer Depictions in Hollywood Horror Films. And this was presented, I think, at a, a master's or a PhD conference a couple of years ago. But One of the pieces that I was trying to look for is, yeah, has anyone done any commentary on the depiction of Angela as a trans woman who is also conservative morally, right? Like, it feels like a bit of an odd thing. And 
Knocker doesn't reference it, so I'm, I'm just bringing it in because I forgot to do it off the top. Sure. But one of the things that I had this kind of epiphany about is, you know how we like to do, you know, oh, well, this is what happens when you don't let trans people be their authentic selves, when you refuse to let them transition and right. so on. Part of me almost feels like this is the movie inadvertently saying, oh, well, if you fuck up trans kids, even when they are allowed to transition later on, they can almost internalize the bullshit conservative values like angela feels like she has swung the pendulum way too far into the kind of moral conservatism that we see where people are very puritanical like no sex no drugs no fucking fun yeah no absolutely and i think i think it would have been helpful if they were able to reuse scenes of aunt martha in this film oh hmm. because you know I mean, the thing we're forgetting is that yeah angela angela was raised by aunt martha and so her persona in this film is maybe not quite as outlandish as aunt martha in that first <laughs> film but they do seem to share the similar ideals about what a lady should and shouldn't do a hundred percent to the point where there are a couple of times that Angela even references her aunt and how she kind of lives by the same code. Yeah. And I looked around, I saw some people again, this is all in letterbox, but complaining about how, Oh, I think the film was very fun, but this also isn't my Angela. This is like, again, yeah, a really conservative morality police Angela. And I don't like this for this character, which I, Hmm. I do understand. Yeah. I think maybe if the film had taken itself more seriously, I might take more of an issue with it. But because I do think the film is stupid intentionally so, it doesn't yeah. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to approach this. Because if you're taking the character at face value and saying, oh, she really is puritanical. Like, let's be honest here. A lot of people see this as part of the commentary on slasher villains, right? Where, oh, you know, Jason Voorhees, he's always going after campers who have sex or do drugs. So, of course, Angela would fall into the same model because Sleepaway Camp is making fun of Friday the 13th. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could see it that if you're looking at this as a queer figure who is also upholding a lot of the morals of an overtly patriarchal society, it's a... It's a little bit odd. Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. Okay. So needless to say, Angela is unimpressed with Phoebe. And when Phoebe makes her way back through the woods, she is hit in the head with her log. And Angela post-mortem cuts off her filthy mouth. (laughs) Her tongue. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I don't know that this film spent the same budget on the desk. So, well, I think some of them are a bit more fun or outlandish. Unfortunately, I don't feel quite as much of a practical effects strength in this film. No. And if you haven't seen this, to give you an idea. So basically, once this Phoebe girl gets logged out. uh, (laughs) Logged out. So it's like the sleight of hand, but it's not done very well. And I don't know if it's Springsteen's hand or not. But it's like, okay, so she's she's making the motion to cut up her tongue as Mm -hmm. one of her hands covers Phoebe's mouth. Yeah. But you can see her hand is squeezing like a blood bag that's in her hand. Sure. To spray over her mouth and then leave the tongue on her chest. So it's like, it it doesn't look very convincing. But again, no. this is where I'm going to go into my hole. But it's a silly movie defense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If, if you're bothered by it, this probably isn't a movie for you because it's not going to get better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. So then we get some hard rock credits and Angela's waking up everybody in the girl's cabin with a whistle because she is, I mean, she's a bit straight laced. 
<laughs> um, also, I thought they were like 60 miles away from Camp Arawak. And so mm-hmm. I'm a little surprised, again, given Sean's admission earlier about his cop dad, that he doesn't call this right away. Also, that because he can't remember her name. He's like, I don't remember mm-hmm. her, what her name was. It was something, something, something. You would think that because she kept the same name, he would remember it. But, you know, whatever. Well, you have to remember that Sean is very busy trying to fuck Molly for most of the movie. He doesn't actually seem to be paying much attention to the fact that we are losing a lot of campers. I also need to know what the timeline of this film is, because it feels like it's about two days and we are killing a approximately a dozen characters well i have a question too because i think at one point there, whenever she sends the fir- i'm sorry whenever she quote unquote sends the first couple girls home mm-hmm. there uh i think it's uncle johnny's like oh it's two out of 38 which i'm like okay so 38 other campers right they don't kill 38 campers in this movie <laughs> no no i took the 38 to be both the staff and the campers but we definitely never see more than well about the 12 people that we see get murdered yeah we we needed like a scene where she poisons the mess hall or something and one of the mess hall just dies from from poison gas or we recognize that something is happening and we just see a busload of kids driving off in the distance yeah anything but yeah you know what they didn't have time to film that shit (laughs) we don't have time we don't have bodies we don't have money move it on (laughs) okay so the first camper that we're really introduced to well here's the thing i don't even know who's a camper and who's a counselor so i'm default assuming that angela and tk and oh it's tc because it's he's named after tom cruise Oh, Jesus, of course he is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm assuming that some of the older looking people are probably counselors, but then folks like Allie is uh, probably a camper. So I'm glad that you said that because I, the whole time I was like, wait a minute, these are really old people to be campers. And we have two little boys that keep trying mm-hmm. to like peep on everyone. And they are yes. the only children that I see in this movie. <laughs> yeah, but... I don't know if you've ever been to camp, but from what I understand, we can have a very disparate age range. So I took Charlie, played by Justin Noel, and Emilio, played by Jason Ehrlich. Those are the two kids who are taking pictures of the girls topless. Mm. I took them to be on the younger end of the scale, whereas people like Allie, who is played by Valerie Hartman, is probably on the upper echelon. But Allie is very clearly not responsible for anybody in this movie no and Allie no. will have her tits out for about 95 percent oh. of her screen time i mean let's be clear them tits are great oh, i actually really like <laughs> i think this actress really commits to this role and she's having 100%. fun doing it. i don't she's not like quite as like evil as judy she's not judy yeah she's not judy but to the point where i actually do kind of like her like i she oh, is sure. she is a bitch but she's not like She's mm-hmm. not a bully in the same way that Judy was. I mean, Trace, we, we've got over this a couple of times. Allie is a hot bitch. And as a gay man, yeah, <laughs> this is who you like the most. In this I movie. know. I know. But, 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 but all I'm saying is I do genuinely like her as opposed sure. to, oh, my God, bitch, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> Queen, we stand. Yeah, yeah, all the words. Yes, mama. <laughs> Jesus. God, I know, right? But yes, I'm in full agreement with you. Allie is a very amusing character, and Hartman seems to be having a lot of fun playing her, particularly when she gets to go up against Molly or Angela. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, what do we think of Molly, played by Miss Estevez? 
Oh, God bless Renee Estevez. She is doing pretty good. I don't think that the character of Molly is particularly interesting, but she also isn't as bad as a lot of our very milquetoast final girls. Yeah, but she just, she is the embodiment of those conservative values, you know? Like, this is like her first kiss. She's never had sex with anyone, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I agree. Like, by all of these factors, she should have boring protagonist syndrome. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, maybe it's because of the short runtime or the fact that we're not really spending, like, the whole movie focused. time with her. Yeah. Well, because Molly's not the protagonist. Angela is. Right. And I think that that is a very smart decision on behalf of the film. Like, if we were treating this like another murder mystery, but we know that there's a camp counselor named Angela, oh god, can you imagine how long this film would feel? (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. Um, But yeah, I think she's fine. Just, you know, she can't really, she can't compete with Allie, because Allie's like the most entertaining non-Angela character in this film. Exactly, yeah. Molly's just here, holding down the fort, trying to have a G-rated romance with Sean. (laughs) Sean's a cutie, too. He is a cutie, yeah. Also, this movie needed better short shorts. Just putting it out there. Right? Okay, the first film got that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like TC, who is played by Brian Patrick Clark, is the closest we get to that. But he's feeling very similar to that one camp counselor from the original Sleepaway Camp. Mm -hmm. And I cannot handle this mullet. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, I know. It's 88. This is firmly the fashion. But at the same time, I cannot handle it. I, well, you know, I won't jump in. Because TC is like, you feel like he's going to be in the movie more, but then they just right. kill his ass. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of disappears for long stretches of time. But that's also this movie's modus operandi is we do a bunch of set pieces and every once in a while we touch base with other characters but most of the time it's the angela game oh yeah it's just moving from murder set piece to murder set piece of course every single one of them is going to be how are these kids rude and how Mm -hmm. is angela going to use that as the theme of their murder (laughs) yes until we get to leah but uh we will touch on that in a bit although i will say that uh, it's weird to me that leah doesn't have more of a role in this She's played by Julie Murphy because she is set up almost immediately as a bit of an antagonist to Allie because she appreciates her breasts, but Allie doesn't like her looking at them, even though, Allie, you're literally walking around with your tits out all the time. So one would presume you kind of want people to look. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I had to look up who Leah was whenever you said that. Oh, (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Folks, if you can remember who Leah is without me telling you how she dies you probably get a gold star for this episode. You get four stars. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Anyway, so Angela doesn't like Allie because, of course, nice girls don't have to show it off. Uh, Agree to disagree. Uh, Exactly. Yes. You know what? (laughs) We should all be doing a bit more tits out because I think it would help people to get more comfortable with sexuality. Yes. We are getting, there's a a couple of editing, like, jokes here again, you know, where it's like, (laughs) oh, what's Angela's problem? I mean, who's going to see me anyway? Cut to two boys right outside taking pictures of all their tits. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah, I have a question about that later on because we do hear that they also have pictures of angela and yes. we don't really do anything with it except have tc compliment her on her breasts yes yes i had the exact same thought okay yeah yeah okay so you mentioned uncle john earlier he is presumably the owner of this camp he's played by walter gotel and he's kind of not a character in this movie he basically shows up to chastise angela whenever she sends someone home quote unquote 
And that's about it. Yeah, also, I'll just get this out of the way now, because anyone who's like really into these films knows. So yes, <laughs> everyone, uh, we know all these characters are named after the Brat Pack, uh, which means that Uncle John is named after John Hughes. Sure. I actually <laughs> did not know that, and that feels like a very weird thing to do. Like, I can always understand when horror films name characters after famous directors, a la Final Destination 1, and yeah. one or two other versions, but... I mean, we're naming people after Brat Pack member. I guess it is the eighties. Okay, but no, but so you have Molly, Molly Ringwald, Ali, Ali Sheedy. The one, the, the the one that should really clue you in though is Mayor because that's mm. Mayor Winningham. <laughs> Fair. Okay, I did think it was weird, but then they later say her name is Mary, and I just thought, oh, okay, I guess we're doing a weird abbreviation. Thing. Ah, but remember, she goes, no, my name is Mayor, not Mary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah so yes that that's the behind the scenes joke of these characters names okay so out of curiosity then do you know who jody and brooke Shote are named after i'm going to say brooke might be brooke she oh actually i bet you it's brooke shields and jody foster because oh. because jody foster was the teenage prostitute and um taxi, taxi driver, driver. Yeah. and brooke shields was that prostitute and um <laughs> oh god is it pretty baby is that the one she's in or is that tatum o'neill uh that might be tatum o'neill obviously brooke shields was popular also because she was a model when she was a young girl but yeah she she was in a movie where she yeah played uh, a yes, sex sorry. worker by the way oh yes i'm sorry i was reading the wikipedia <laughs> oh, hmm, wikipedia i thought we got woke with wikipedia a couple of weeks ago Come no, no no you're right no uh, but because uh, so yes pretty baby is a 1978 film in which brooke shields plays a 12 year old sex worker and there she is tits out as a minor in this movie Yes, I remember hearing that on You Must Remember This, because I felt very uncomfortable listening to that while I was walking in a public place. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 I would wager that these two are Jodie Foster and Brooke Shields. Fair. Okay, I like it. I'm going to go with it. Also, they are played by Amy Fields and Carol Chambers. And they have nothing to do until they die. Absolutely nothing to do. Now, so... um. Early in the movie, this movie's going to drop a couple of slurs. Yes, it we does. We never really <laughs> talked about the genesis of Dyke, but I'm gathering, based on conversations that I've had with some people in book club and bandied around the internet, I feel like Dyke definitely is a slur, but that uh, the queer female community has appropriated this one pretty strongly. Well, so I'm I'm curious then because I'm we yes we get several dykes in a this lot. movie. A lot, yeah. We get one faggot in this movie, mm -hmm. and I'm curious. You as a gay man, do you have those two words? Because I know how you feel about the F slur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do so you, thank you for already saying. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. I, I was only going to say it once, and that's okay. my one time to get out. I will say F slur. Mm -hmm. We can bleep if we want, but no, it's fine. I was curious. Like, do, do you have do you hold dyke on the same? like kind of offensive level as 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 the f slur well okay so it's tricky because i feel like normally i would but we're, we're a couple of months removed from pride and there's often like a dykes on bikes march so i think that's probably why i don't feel the same level you know i i think that's why i feel like it's been successfully reappropriated by yeah queer women because it feels more common like i'm used to hearing that word even though i do still get a Ugh. who are you to say it are you a member of the community 
Yeah, and, and this is not me pushing back at you or your ideals, mm-hmm. by, by the way. But okay. it, it, I kind of agree with you. I, to, for me, from my perspective, I do feel like, yeah, the word dyke has been more co-opted. However, I have seen more and more gay men co-opt the F-slur. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say it's widespread. Like, I still think that <laughs> it, it, it's still like, like uh, it, it kind of sets people off when you say it. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I see more and more gay men use that term nowadays. And I, right. But here's the thing, though. Sometimes it's still in a derogatory way. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I feel like I've heard people self-describe as a dyke, and I hear a lot of loud gay men use the F-slur, but it's still, yeah, it still sounds derogatory to me, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I'm just, I find all this, again, very fascinating, like how, how we as a community are co-opting wor- words like this, but also, <laughs> you and I are kind of in an older age group, so right. it's like, this younger Gen Z generation is now the one that's doing this or leading mm-hmm. the charge on this i guess i mean here's the thing if this is a case where i need to be dragged kicking and screaming out of the darkness and into the light then by uh. all means educate feel free to tell me that i'm wrong or that yeah you know it is a far more popular term because i'm happy to accept if language is changing you know because of course it is like it happens it's just one of those cases where i personally don't have a lot of engagement with the f slur in my everyday life so to me it definitely still feels like ooh, i just got hit in the face well but that's the, again that, that that is where the age difference comes in right mm-hmm. because i mean look i was called the f slur several times growing up it wasn't like a constant thing that i had no so i, I don't have like the I'm going to say PTSD, um, Mm -hmm. or I'm I'm not as easily triggered by that word as you are. Right. But that's the other thing is, too, like, as people are kind of growing up and doing this, remember, y'all, just because you're not being called the F-slur on a daily basis (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean that some of the others weren't. So it's kind of a give-and-take respect thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Be mindful, be respectful, and obviously, if you have an opportunity to educate people, because, you know, we had to do that, as we said on the podcast before, When we first started this, we got pushback from people who said, you can't use the word queer because that's a slur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does happen. It does change. And hopefully, yeah, we can take some of these really hateful derogatory terms and bring them back into the fold. And it's just a question of, is it happening now? Is it happening in the future? Is it maybe never happening? So what you're saying is once the F slur enters into academia lexicon, we'll be fine. (laughs) Because instead of queer theory, we'll have faggot theory. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know what? It's probably out there somewhere. It's probably out there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Back to this movie. So in the mess hall, after Allie (laughs) complains about the Shout sisters and breakfast and basically everything under the fucking sun, because nothing makes Allie happy except maybe the D and preferably Sean's, we award Camp Counselor of the Week to one Angela Johnson... And she is invited to sing the Happy Camper song. And Trace, I have pasted the Happy Camper song into the chat. Uh-huh. And I encourage you to sing along with me. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> we have not practiced this, y'all. Are you ready? Yeah. So. Right. Oh, I'm a happy camper. I love, I love the, the summer, summer sun. sun. I love, I love the, trees the trees and, and forests. Forest. I'm, I'm always, always having, having fun. <laughs> we are not doing this right. <laughs> well, I feel like we're just singing two very different songs, but I do love the fact that we try to make it rhyme in the first line, and then the second line is just, and with the grace of God, I'll camp until I die. And it's like, 
die in sky folks i mean no it it it, 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 it's a half a rhyme Mm. (laughs) it is i and i sounds oh boy yeah oh my god okay (laughs) this might already immediately date the episode but have you heard troy savon's new as of this recording song rush Okay. Which is disappointing because usually I'm on top of his music. Uh, yeah, you should uh, watch the video because it's very sexy. Oh, okay. But the, the chorus is, I feel the rush, addicted to your touch. But it's, mm. A, does rush and touch, does that rhyme for you? No, okay. no, it does not. I thought it was, I feel the rush, addicted to your tush. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would make sense given the person who's singing, but also no. It doesn't. It's not a rhyme either. No. <laughs> Nevertheless, no. "sky and die" is a better rhyme than "rush and touch." Oh boy! I mean, I don't like either of them. <laughs> so you're a real stickler. You want actual like hard rhymes. I want rhymes. rhyme. Yes. <laughs> I hate oatmeal. I hate the Shout Sisters, and I hate rhymes that don't work. <laughs> Also, I appreciate everyone putting up with us as we tried to sing on the podcast. We probably lost at least a dozen listeners for that. We, we were not singing the same melody in any no. shape, way, or form. But no. to be fair, I forgot what the melody was. So I was making it up on the fly. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think yours was maybe a little closer, but you were very hesitant. So, Well, I, I was hesitant because I was waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> I love the clear blue sky, and with the grace... Oh, fuck, no, can't do it. Scratch that. <laughs> I think you mostly... No, you, you were on it. You know what? I'm going to give you a solid B. A solid B minus. Okay. A solid tush. Yes. <laughs> tush. Tush, tush, touch. <sighs> touch that tush. Yes. <sighs> okay. Okay. So, Angela is very excited by all of this. Everyone else, less so. Although TC, who is at least one of the other camp counselors, seems a bit smitten with her, though obviously there is a little bit of sexual apprehension when he asks her to go swimming or suggests that she works on her tan. And this is why I found it unexpected that we do get confirmation that she definitely has breast. She went through her surgery later on because I initially thought, oh, okay, she... I mean, clearly she's uncomfortable with her body or sexuality, but I thought it meant that she hadn't fully transitioned yet. Yeah, yeah, I, but, well, not the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, we can acknowledge it's 1988, so obviously we weren't going to cast a transgender actress right. in the role of a transgender character, but it still is a little bit like, yeah, we really just picked a lady and then said yep she's trans oh yeah I, well, uh, yes <laughs> i don't have anything to respond to that except no. yes that is those are all factual statements this is true touch the tush <laughs> okay so she's not interested in tc because she is a model camp counselor that's all fine so we transition over to the pool and we've got molly and sean trying to get to know each other this is where we get additional information about his dad being a cop uh we learn that she is i think the youngest of multiple kids who could care sure. it comes to nothing and then this is when ali more or less dares rob who is played by terry hobes to throw her in the pool so that she can do a wet t-shirt contest in front of sean 
who does not give a fuck no but uh, actually the framing of this is actually an okay shot too because mm-hmm. we have molly and sean on their stomachs facing the camera mm-hmm. but then in the background we can see Allie and rob rob back there doing their shit and so when she comes up and her tits are all well not out but they might as well be they might out. As well be. <laughs> they're wet <laughs> <laughs> i love that she's basically baiting him as she's removing the top of her swimsuit like just to make sure there is no misunderstanding that she definitely wanted this to happen now joe we just talked about this in psycho she is not baiting anyone in this movie (laughs) uh no it's true (laughs) so in the woods angela comes across one of the shout sisters smoking uh there's some drinking some fornicating i love that we're using the word fornicate in Um, this movie wait i can do this chant though oh Mm -hmm. i'm a happy camper i like to drink and fuck and if you pay me money on my titties you can suck (laughs) (laughs) now tell me again why is it that you could get one of these and not the other because one of them is way more fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a little disappointing that the show sisters don't get more to do or that they don't hang around a little longer because obviously angela would get rid of them pretty quickly because they are bad girls but they're also fun to watch yes and but the fun part of this is that so one of the girls was 18 years old the other one was not and because we did have a lot of minors on the set of this film we had like the the labor board out to make sure they were all following the rules you know like Mm -hmm. give your kids as many hours blah, blah 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 well they couldn't have the younger girl like in her death scene. She was too young to be in a death scene, oh. which is why we cut and she's mm. already like a black skeleton. Okay. That's interesting because yeah, I've definitely got a note in this section that this is badly edited, but I don't think it's because of that. Cause I actually thought the reveal of that, where one of the sisters wakes up and she sees that the other one is already a black and skeleton. Right. I thought that was fine. It's more the fact that Angela sees this. She yells at the show sisters. She walks away. We fade to black. And when we come back, she's asking TC where the sisters are. And then we go back to the woods to do the murders. And I was like, why is Angela pretending to TC that she doesn't know where they are? I get it could be a cover, but it just feels like the mm. film actually is making a technical mistake. Well, this is, yeah, this is going back to your, uh, the passage of time here, because mm-hmm. when she catches them drinking, it seems like she's like, you know what? I'll give them one more chance. And then we sure. get a passage of time, which is the fade out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it feels very awkward and from an editing standpoint. Yeah, exactly. I will say this is the most egregious example of this. You know, I I honestly cannot tell you if this movie is meant to take place over two weeks, two days, two months. But this is the only part where I felt like the film is actually just badly made. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Okay, so yes, the Shout sisters are dead. If you are drinking at home along, then uh, take a couple sips because we got bodies that are going to start piling up. And say no to drugs. <laughs> Indeed. The PSAs are about to begin. Okay, so there's a girl who's screaming about how much she hates camp. So Angela puts her in a car and sends her home. And Uncle John is dismayed because he's not happy that she's just doing this without permission or even conferring with him or TC. So this will kind of become a plot point, but not really. What? It doesn't make any sense because I'm telling you right no. now, when I went to summer camp as a kid, we were four hours away from home. Mm-hmm. So if my parents had to come and get me, that was an ordeal. 
Exactly. Yeah, I can see it here with this girl whose parents actually pick her up. But every other time, the idea that, yeah, people are just showing up to pick up these kids who are supposedly being sent home. No, you would have seen the car or it would have taken a long time. I do kind of feel bad that we don't kill this whining girl, though, because honestly, she was more annoying than half of these characters. <laughs> well, we're still in the point of the film where Angela is only trying to kill people who actually commit offenses to her very rigid moral code. So being a brat doesn't qualify. Although later on, this kid would have gotten it. Well, because I, I, she's like, I want to go home. But the way Angela says, well, I think we can arrange that. It, it mm-hmm. almost feels snide. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like if we hadn't seen people in that car picking this girl up, I would have assumed that we were killing her. Yeah. Okay, so Angela has to leave after lights out that night, and that leaves the opportunity for the girls to gossip, and it's all very exciting. Then the boys bust in on a panty raid, so you know that this is a teen film from the 80s. (laughs) I had never heard of a panty raid before. I did not know this was a thing. Oh. But I love that the girls just do it right back to them. Yes, although, <laughs> did you find it weird that they specifically say we're going to go after their jock straps? Like, oh yeah, that's a thing that all boys will have at camp? I, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that jock straps are a sporting form of underwear, but yes. I only know them from the world of gay pornography. I mean, fair. Yes, uh, that is definitely applicable. I'm assuming that they would have them for if they were playing baseball or something, but it just seemed weird to me that all the boys would apparently have one. Okay, I could easily look this up. Um, what is the point of a jockstrap? Like, like, what is the functionality of not having an ass on your underwear? Uh, it's mostly just because you're actually just protecting the front. So you would hypothetically wear this over other underwear you would put in a protective cup to make sure you don't get beamed in the balls. But... In terms of, like, sexy underwear, uh, just assuming easy access in the back? I guess so. I, I just, I, again, the, the, the assless part of it doesn't make sense from, a, from a, a, like, a sporting standpoint for me. But mm-hmm. I'm not a sports person, so I digress. You just gotta let that tush uh, breathe a little bit, you know? That way <laughs> Troy Sylvan can touch it. Well, I have a swamp ass, so, like, it actually helps me <laughs> because, I, no, like, I think I told you, like, I can't wear anything but jeans because otherwise I will have a sweat stain on any kind of cloth pants. Wow. Well, it's good to know that you're not using this podcast to recruit boys, Trace. I know, right? God. <laughs> um, but, hey, do you know what the female version of a jock strap is called? A G-string? <laughs> a Jill strap. Boo, get out of here. What the fuck? <laughs> I hate it. Thank you. No. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's also very fun to see how TC does not care about this jockstrap raid compared to Angela having a basic shit fest and, you know, bemoaning the fact that she is the wicked witch of the West. <laughs> oh, but, Angela. But Mayor is fine with this. She's like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to show my tits anyway. Tits, 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 tits. This is true. If you can figure out who Mare is compared to Leah, also good on you. You get another four stars. She is apparently played by Susan Marie Snyder. I guess she's not important because she's about to die in the car via drill. But again, it just feels like there's maybe a few too many superfluous campers in this movie because none of them make enough of an impact. Yeah, I almost think honestly, like, because Mare, I remember just because we have that whole conversation about her name. But I, sure. 
I gotta ask you, Joe, what kind of drill is this? Uh, not a practical one. <laughs> it almost looks like an egg beater. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously we're making a riff on Slumber Party Massacre, which is fine. But sure. those movies, from what I recall, don't have anyone dying in a car because this is very unwieldy. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I, they probably had the car and they were like, let's use it. <laughs> sure, yeah. It also makes sense because it'd be hard to get away from Angela in this situation. That is true. Although we get another car kill later. So it's like, y'all, mm-hmm. diversify your locations. <laughs> Trace, we talked about this. They only had a certain amount of camp to work with. Less than the per diem of a Friday the 13th <laughs> film. <laughs> We're probably lucky they even had a car and a truck in this movie. That's true. Okay, so we do have some other campers that we need to talk about, including Anthony, who is played by Benji Wilhoyt, and Judd, who is played by Walter Franks III. And these are our horror movie loving boys who really want to get back at Angela for spoiling all of the fun. So they decide they're going to make things that are going to scare her at that night's campout. I also love the moment where TC comes up to the mic in the mess hall and reads a list of missing items because it does include things like a saw, a roll of rope, yeah. various underwear, <laughs> and most tellingly, a battery from his car. Yeah, put that in your back pocket. But I, I, I honestly, the comedy in this was that he well, he didn't find any of that odd. He was just mm-hmm. like, yeah, someone just took all these things, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. All of these weapons and also underwear that is missing because obviously. A bunch of items are stolen from the boys and girls camp. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So Rob is still trying to chat Allie up, but uh, she mostly has eyes for Sean. This will become important in a little bit. But we see that Molly has followed Angela up to a boarded up cottage in the woods. This is where we get a little bit of character development for Molly. And I guess also Angela, because as you said, she is a bit of a different character than we know from Mm -hmm. the past. So we learn that uh, Angela used to be shy, and now you can't get her to shut up. And she's very <laughs> judgmental, but Allie thinks she has a disease or two. But she is proud to still be a virgin. Well, yeah, there's a saying that my aunt taught me. Keep your morals strong, and you'll never go wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very much living the life according to Aunt Martha. But also, it's interesting because I wonder, Trace, do you agree with Noker, the reference I'm using Mm. for this episode, when he says the characters' interactions throughout the film suggest Angela's homoerotic desire for Molly? Um, uh, I I don't know if I believe that. Mm -hmm. Because Angela seems so anti-sex that I almost view her as asexual. But I... I don't know how comfortable I feel uh, conflating a kinship with Mm -hmm. a romance. Unless we're really going into the whole like, oh, that's like a Norman Bates thing, right? Where, oh, she is getting aroused, but because of the way her brain is wired, she is so against the idea of it that Mm -hmm. she can't. So I guess if we're looking at it from that perspective, yeah, I could kind of agree with him on that point. But based on what we have in front of us here, I'm just kind of like, no, I just think that she's just being a friend. It's hard. I think you could make the argument that, yeah, she either has brain damage as a result of what we hear has been done to her when she was in an institution, or that, yeah, she has significant repressed sexual urges that she's not able to act on. And as a result, she kind of has swung the other way. But 
I think it's most easy to just take the film at face value for these scenes and say, oh, she sees in Molly a bit of a kindred spirit because Molly is kind of like her, a little bit virginal and mostly good. Yeah, but that does kind of make the end of the film like frustrating because you're like, well, why are you going to try to kill her? She's a good girl. (laughs) Well, we'll get there. Yeah. Okay, so we get this kind of throwaway joke, but I still find it funny where we're doing the blindfolded, put your hand in the jar. And of course, when people get to Angela, she tells them it's a dead teenager's brains. What's really in there, Angela? Dead teenager's brains. (laughs) I mean, we haven't really said too, too much about Springsteen's delivery, but she is so fucking chipper that i really think it makes a lot of her line deliveries even the kind of groaner clunker comedy ones quite amusing yeah and and look no shade to felissa rose but like the first film wasn't really a good like showcase for her acting abilities because Mm -hmm. she just had to sit there and kind of look mopey the entire time and so i i would have liked to have seen what she would have done with this role but yeah i think that springsteen really does handle the comedy very very well Mm mm-hmm Yeah, what's funny is that Felissa Rose stars in a lot of these kinds of slightly trashy, self-aware, low-budget films now. Yep. So I think if this film had been made later than five years after the original film, she might have actually been able to nail this part. Like, if we did A Sleepaway Camp 5, I could imagine bringing back Felissa Rose to play Angela. Well, to be fair, because uh, I get so confused with these sequels to Sleepaway Camp, because there's mm-hmm. like... There's a fourth one where Felissa Rose does come back. It's oh. like return to sleepaway camp. But oh. but it's a weird like basically there's a character who I believe is dressed up as a man or is played by a man for the entire movie. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's revealed. Oh, wait, that's actually Angel. He takes off his mask and it's Felissa Rose under the mask. So it's like, oh, boy. And this is from like 2008. But it was one of those things where it's like they filmed a little bit of it, but then they couldn't. And they filmed it later. Right. But whatever. Okay. Well, that sounds not good. Apparently, it's not good. But nevertheless. (laughs) (laughs) See, that to me just sounds really trashy. Like, it's obviously in on the joke. But at the same time, it doesn't sound like it's treating it as enough of a joke. Or maybe it's too much of a joke. But that sounds like bad taste humor. Whereas this is kind of amusing humor. Well, I also just think, look, I mean, if you're a fan of these movies and like, you know, oh, like we're getting returned to Sleepaway Camp and Felissa Rose is returning to the franchise. Oops, mm-hmm. it's just an like, climactic stinger. Right. Um, okay. That's a cameo. Uh, That's not a movie with her. A hundred percent. Okay, so right. kind of related, kind of not. But have you seen Zoolander 2? I have, and I remember virtually nothing about it. Okay. But do you remember that Kristen Wiig is in the movie? Mm, no okay Kristen Wiig is the main villain of Zoolander 2 okay (laughs) but it is revealed in the very very end of the film when she's fighting with Zoolander or someone whoever the fuck Mm -hmm. they pull off her face and it's Mila Jovovich from the first film who's been in like costume as Kristen Wiig the whole movie and I'm like okay I get that we like Kristen Wiig but why are you robbing Mila Jovovich of her chance to reprise this role (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Unless, you know, she was actually busy doing other things and this is how she was able to come back. But Which yeah. may be the case, but I'm still like, God, like, Miljovic mm-hmm. is one of the funniest parts of that first movie. It's anyway. true. <laughs> 
don't know. Let let people reprise their roles if they are available and you can afford them. But yeah, I mean, I don't like just popping people back in for a couple of seconds as a kind of, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, which they also do with Christine Taylor in that movie. Because remember, they kill her between films and she pops oh. up as like an angel for a cameo scene. Oh, fuck. I hated that. I do remember that and I do not like it. Hated it. Ugh. But yes. Mm. I mean, I also remember not liking Zoolander 2 overall, so I'm it's hardly surprised great. by my reaction. It is not great. It is no. not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, it is funny, though. Well, actually, it's not that funny, but <laughs> Judd and Anthony are painting a Jason Voorhees mask and Freddy gloves. Okay, I'm sorry. The Freddy, quote-unquote, makeup this guy is putting on his face, it's mm-hmm. just, I want to say, sheets of baloney? It looks like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is, I mean, yeah, this is your big meta moment where it's like, look, y'all, we understand that we are in our, what, by this point, fourth Nightmare on Elm Street film and Mm -hmm. seventh Friday 13th film. So, or I guess we're also doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre here, too. We are, yeah. But yeah, this is kind of fun. This is where we get our F slur, which came really out of nowhere. Honestly, yeah. I mean, the dyke thing makes sense coming from Allie because I absolutely buy that she would say something like that. And this just feels like the movie treating it like a boys will be boys moment and i did not like it and you know on a level i could almost buy into that but i would you're right though it kind of works for ali because ali is a character in this movie yes judd and anthony it's anthony right it is yes okay but the reason you had to ask is because they are not characters in this fucking movie honestly because i think they are in the movie before this scene but i couldn't even tell you what they do like when i got to this scene in this 76 minute movie i was like oh there are boys in this camp that aren't these children (laughs) well and it's really easy to conflate these two with the boys who are taking the pictures which i think would have actually made more sense to have just made them the same characters but they are not well but here's the thing though you know why because we do see those boys dead later as corpses yeah but they're probably young they couldn't film a death scene with them in it Uh, although honestly anthony and judd's death scene is not particularly good no it's not (laughs) like we we see her attack them with her texas chainsaw weather face and this is like bargain ban Leatherface mask. Uh-huh. I mean, even the Jason mask isn't really like a Jason hockey mask. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because I I wonder if they would have had to pay to have it. Ooh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so it's like Schmetherface. <laughs> Basically. I mean, I think you could look at this and even misconstrue that's who she's supposed to be. The only reason I got it is because she has a chainsaw. Yeah, I will take her, um, once I start a task, I always finish. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Selling it as hard as she fucking can, Springsteen. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, so obviously since the boys are dead, they never show up to scare the girls, but Angela gives it a try because, of course, she's actually still trying to be a camp counselor to these girls, even though they all kind of secretly hate her, except for Molly. Mm-hmm. But uh, the person who hates her the most isn't even their trace because... Ali is in the bathroom getting eaten out in the least convincing scene of <laughs> cunnilingus I have ever seen on screen. I thought this was all very funny. So yeah, this is the scene where we, we the whole thing is shot from the waist down. So we just right. see them like 
moving from one end of this bathroom to the other, like mm-hmm. over and over as they finally start to fuck. I, I thought it was a fun way to shoot a sex scene, but I agree. It it's it's not convincing at all, but I do also feel like that's kind of the point. That's the joke. Oh, 100%. Yeah, like this character is obviously very bad at this, although in the world of the film, it does kind of seem like Ali is enjoying it, but it's not convincing and very funny and stupid. Very stupid, too. Well, and he's eating around. He keeps trying to come up and she keeps trying to push it. So honestly, I kind of like that because you know mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of jokes bad jokes about men who are head pushers you know they're pushing right. their head down because they want you to give them head so again i like that we're flipping the gender here and it's the girl pushing the guy's head down mm-hmm. particularly in 1988 yeah 100 percent. not something we were used to seeing you know nowadays i feel like it's very commonplace to see a man going down on a woman because i think tv and film are trying to actually be more sex positive particularly when it comes to female pleasure right this was not something i was expecting to see in a film for 1988 yeah i like i like quote unquote that ali is the aggressor in this sex scene yeah because rob is obviously very stupid and kind of inexperienced whereas she yeah. obviously knows what she wants mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> So Angela would have killed them both here, but her chainsaw is out of juice. So <laughs> Ali just gets to tell her that her blood is very unconvincing because she has Anthony and Judd blood on her face. <laughs> it looks like ketchup. <laughs> Which, if we're being honest, the production probably used ketchup for a lot of the blood in this movie. That is that sounds accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so the next day, Allie turns her attention to destroying Molly's self-confidence. She tells her that she openly hates her, and she tries to suggest that she has already slept with Sean and that he is a lousy lay. And then Molly, this is how you know that Molly is too much of a good fucking girl because she does <laughs> exactly what Allie says she's going to do, and she runs to Angela. Yeah, she's real stupid. Uh, this is when Allie goes back to fucking Rob, so I guess because they got interrupted yesterday, they're gonna try again today, but this- okay, so it was funny when they were in the bathroom. This, I feel like, is meant to just be a straightforward sex scene where he's up against this log and she's on top, but he looks sleepy and she looks (laughs) like she's in pain. It's not good, but it's not funny either. I'm not one for public sex, uh, much less woods sex. Um, None of this looks comfortable. And her titties are just bouncing around all over the place, whacking Mm -hmm. him in the face. Yeah. And then we cap this off with possibly the most offensive line in the film, because this is 1988. So for her to presumably after having unsafe, no condom sex, get up and say, you don't have AIDS or anything, do you? (laughs) Okay, I confess I did laugh at that, but... <laughs> well, yeah, it's offensive, but it's yes. very much like, Jesus Christ, Ellie. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, honestly, though, cause, because she's meant to be a horrible, like, despicable character, and we're about to get... She's about to die, so, like... This I, is true. But, yeah, uh, it, it, I was very much like a, oh! <laughs> mm-hmm. It is unexpected. The first time you watch this movie, you are not ready for that line. Not at all. Um, <laughs> nor am I ready for piss and shit and leeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Allie, <laughs> just to show you how fucking stupid she is, she finds this obviously very fake-ass letter from Sean, so she goes to the abandoned cottage where we have previously seen Angela, who stabs her in the back and then, yes, tosses her down the outhouse. 
And I wish we could have asked Carter a couple of weeks ago if he is referencing this in Swallowed, but I think that this is just a funny way of killing someone in a horror film. This is ridiculous. And I do, because you said earlier that we get some POV shots from the poop um, mm-hmm. as, as uh, Angel's trying to push Allie's head in here. I yes. think this is all really fun. Um, I know this is all fake, but like mm-hmm. this looks disgusting when her head oh, comes yeah. up. And honestly, the leeches? Mm-hmm. Leeches? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, she is covered in them, too. I will say, I think of an issue I have. I, I, I like this death for Allie. I think it's appropriate. I wish it sure. happened later in the film. Yeah, like, her and the Shote sisters needed to be teased along further. Because, I mean, the movie is not long. So it's not as though we have a huge length of time to go before other, you know, things happen. Right. But it does feel like Allie dies too early. We should have saved her death for later. Well, and it's because also because... Uh, once we get her, who who is ostensibly the main villain of the film, I mean, mm-hmm. taking Angela aside. Sure. The rest of this is, oh, Angela's now killing people to avoid getting caught. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like with Ali, this is the last death that she has where it's actually driven by her moral code. And then she has to pivot very quickly because, yeah, she's on the cusp of being discovered. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and that, unfortunately, is less it's interesting. It's not as interesting. And it's not as funny. No. Definitely not. Although I will say there is a very funny line coming up that I did laugh at. Oh, sure. I mean, there are so funny parts in the movie. It's just that we've lost her MO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so Rava and Sean are back at camp talking more about Camp Arawak. The characters are slowly putting the pieces together. <laughs> this is when our, I guess our one other token black character, Demi, aka Moore, who is played by Kendall Bean, uh, <laughs> comes in and she basically seals her own death warrant by telling Angela that she called a bunch of people who purportedly went home and they never made it. And of course, we get this very funny visual of Angela going around the cabin, <laughs> testing various weapons yeah. which to kill Demi. <laughs> yeah, no. See, if, if I could see this with an audience, this is the scene I would want. Because even though Demi's death is whatever, yeah. Um, yeah, watching Springsteen go around and just test all these potential murder weapons, mm-hmm. especially when she's like checking the weight of the boombox. Right? <laughs> it definitely feels the closest that this movie comes to capturing the energy of a scary movie. I can imagine yes. the Wayans brothers looking at this and saying, yeah, you know what? That's what we want to go for. Only feature length. That. Exactly. 100%. So, yes, Demi is almost immediately killed with guitar string. And then Leah. Hey, everybody. Remember Leah? She's apparently a character in this movie. She literally walks in as Angela is trying to get Demi's body out the window. So she just has to be stabbed to death. But I do love the fact that she literally says, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I know. Yeah, that's really good. (laughs) She's just genuinely confused. Mm -hmm. And Angela goes, you're going to tell. No more Mm -hmm. whining. Now, wouldn't it have been a better idea to have the whining girl that went home earlier get this death? Because then it's at least kind of like, okay, whining. Yeah, like you could have had that girl still be at camp, not send her away, or make Demi that character or something. But yeah, I mean... That scene doesn't go anywhere except to establish that Uncle John is really mad at Angela for sending people home. But this would have been a much better payoff. A hundred percent. Okay. Okay. 
So Molly gets a goodnight kiss with Sean because we're still meant to care about these two. And when she comes into the cabin, she realizes she is the only girl left. So everyone else here is dead. And then we get this blue filtered slow motion nightmare from Angela. And what do we think of this? Okay, so um, I can't tell you, but I think of it because I know why it's in here. So I need you to tell me. Do you think this is a good use of the film's runtime? We're padding it, aren't we? Yes. So here is the (laughs) behind the scenes scoop on this. They were contracted for an 80 minute film and their final runtime (laughs) with credits came in at 78 minutes. And they're already done filming. They can't go back and do reshoots. And so the editor was like, well, let's repurpose it. Let's repurpose it. And so they make a two-minute nightmare sequence mm-hmm. with slow motion, re-showing all the deaths we've already seen. Yep. And yeah, this blue filter Angela. But here's the thing. The funny thing is this. The editor is on this these uh, these interviews, like, talking about this. And it's like, th- we did this because we had to turn in an 80-minute film. So we needed to just make up two minutes of footage. Sure. In the commentary, though, where the editor is not present and it's the writer, the director, oh and that. Uh, they try to bullshit their way through it, don't they? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we're really getting into Angela's headspace here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing it actually does work. It's just that it's done for too long to the so point long. where you can see them trying to stretch it. But it does lend her a certain level of psychology where even if consciously she is doing this and she's kind of being a horrible person because she's killing innocent kids subconsciously she's wrestling with what she's doing because she knows she's being bad sure i totally get that that totally makes sense Mm -hmm. it's just not why they did it no and here's the thing if this was 30 seconds i'd kind of maybe get it but you're right but but by the time you hit that two minute mark you're like oh my god this is still going on Mm -hmm. It feels like you're watching a miniature recap of the movie. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we just took off the blue filter and used this to open Sleepaway Camp 3. I That's what it feels like, honestly. I will say, though, I do like the slowed down version of the Happy Camper song. I do think it's kind of creepy. I'm a happy camper. camper. <laughs> <laughs> we get that one, right? Oh, sure. Now we can do it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You know what? We're, we're going to work on it. We'll come back stronger and better next week. How's yeah, that? Exactly. Next year for Sleepaway Camp. I'm sure they say no, it. No, we're not doing it. I'm not doing another one of these. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in the morning, Angela gets fired by Uncle John and TC because she has supposedly sent home an entire cabin full of girls at this point. <laughs> But here's the thing. There's only one cabin of girls and one cabin of boys. Yes. 36 people at this camp. (laughs) The the numbers do not track. Not at all. (laughs) So Molly encourages Sean that they should go and talk to her. So they follow Angela back to the abandoned cottage. This is when she tries to make it work. But unfortunately, Sean finds all the bodies. So we've got to knock him out. We tie both him and Molly up. And um, TC shows up. Angela throws battery acid in his face. This is when I felt the absence of good practical effects because this could have been really gnarly. And instead, it's just it looks like we splash something on him and then we see his face later and it just doesn't look great. 
Yeah, but I will say, and I, I do find all this very funny because, yeah, we're in here with all the corpses and mm-hmm. they all do look so bad that really bad. It, it is hilarious to me. And like oh. there, there's one. Is it TC or who, who is it? There, there's a corpse whose face is clearly ripped off and you just see like their eyeballs and their skeleton face. Mm, yeah, uh, I can't remember which one of them that is, but you, you're just kind of like, oh, OK, yeah. OK, it's, it's kind of fun. But the, yeah, I don't give a shit about molly and sean in this and clearly the movie doesn't either because we don't keep sean around for much longer (laughs) it's true but before we kill him this is when we need to have our conversation about how angela self-identifies and what has happened to her okay because sean reverts into basically the kind of person you would still see hanging out on twitter nowadays so he resorts to calling her peter so he misgenders misnames her dead names her yeah yeah and this is when she claps back at him and says she's been angela for years so she says i did my time two years of therapy electroshock therapy Mm -hmm. every kind of pill you ever heard of i'm completely cured and trace i feel like the film is not addressing her transition in this moment it's addressing her psychosis her mental stability yeah but I think because we don't have anything else to go on, I have to also then read this as an unintentional commentary on her transness. Yeah, it's interesting. So I I agree with you. It is talking about her psychosis, um, which you can read that as, okay, yeah, I I had my transition because I am a transgender woman. Therefore, getting my my operation done, doing the transition did cure me of the psychosis because it was my gender dysphoria that was making me psychopathic in the first place. Mm -hmm. Sure. Problem is, she's still a psychopath. Um, Yeah. But you could also read it as... I'm cured of my gender dysphoria? Well, I think the positive way to read this is that she did realize after everything that happened in the first film that she identifies as a woman. She ended up getting the surgery and then she was not cured of psychosis because she still had all this fucked up baggage and things that she needed to work through. And she thought that she was okay to the point where she successfully applies to become a camp counselor and, you know, live her best life helping other people have a great summer and it's only because aunt martha fucked her up so badly with her moral code that she can't let go of that so she got therapy she got electroshock therapy but it wasn't addressing the kind of internalized morals that she had gotten and as a result as soon as those get compromised all of her mental rehabilitation progress falls away yeah no i get that i mean like like, do you find this particularly offensive um because it's a comedy i I know right but i think people could still misinterpret it and say oh this is another trans killer even though it's ha ha funny funny but you know i'm happy to see I, i only found one other article that sort of addresses the film it is by uh, our friend and former guest, Reina Cervantes. So she wrote for one of Terry Menard, also former guest, for one of his Pride fundraiser pieces. She wrote about how this movie was actually empowering. And she really likes it because it shows Angela as a powerful trans woman who has accepted her sexuality. She's not the butt of a joke. She's not the twist anymore. And I thought that, okay, you know what? That's at least one trans woman who finds something positive in this depiction. So... Who the fuck am I to say otherwise? Yeah, that's kind of like I'm bleeding out from our conversation last year with Tenbaki over the first mm-hmm. film. Like, 
I don't think there's a lot of nuance in this particular sequel as as no. much as you can get from that first film. But yeah. I'm kind of like using holdovers from that conversation to well, maybe not excuse some of the stuff in this film, but maybe like uh, uh, being more open to different interpretations of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't love the fact that Angela is a killer still, but I do kind of like that she takes no fucks like she believes in something and she's willing to kill for it and she's the smartest most capable person in this entire movie yeah i think you could also make an argument um hey electroshock therapy uh maybe not a good idea (laughs) yeah that shit will fuck you up real bad yeah exactly Mm -hmm. but i mean what i appreciate about the sequel compared to that first film is that it does give angela the agency yes because that's the big issue with the first film right we don't know how angela or peter at the time identifies at Mm -hmm. all yeah and in this film she says she's a woman and she has been a woman for several years so we we finally have confirmation of who she is and how she identifies yes now the flip side to that is that of course if you're watching uh, if people who are like grandma 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 are watching this and they're like well yeah but she's only has an agency she only feels this way because she suffered child abuse at the hands of aunt martha Mm. and whatever she went through in that first film as well like You can make a negative argument for it as well because it's feeding, oh, well, the only reason Angela is trans is because she's mentally unstable after enduring child abuse. Yeah. So, but again, do I expect this 76-minute direct-to-video sequel to really, (laughs) from 1988, to really go in-depth on that? No. (laughs) No, I don't even know that this movie had the language to do the work. Exactly. And again, not an excuse. It's just more so like a... There's bigger mm-hmm. fr- fish to fry. Right. Yeah. There's bigger tishes to touch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as you cued us to, our hunky hottie Sean is not long for this world because Angela just decapitates him and leaves his head in the motherfucking TV. I forgot this happened. I actually Me thought too. we were like Molly and Sean like in game. Yeah, so points to this movie for saying, oh, yeah, none of these other characters ultimately matter. It's the Angela show. Have you not caught on yet? (laughs) So, well, this is happening and Molly is freaking out. She does manage to escape. There's some other body. I think it's the guy that Allie... No, it's one of the Shote sisters. The guy that the Shote sister was fucking that's who she's dragging through the woods here but again you'd be forgiven for forgetting because we literally never even got that character's name and here he's just dead so whatever and molly manages to escape she makes a run through the woods this sequence also goes on for too long very long time (laughs) and and that's the thing because a big issue i have with this climax too is that she finds a bunch of bodies of people that we haven't seen get killed yet. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like a missed opportunity where, I mean, again, maybe it's a budget thing. Maybe it's a time thing because they're filming in two or three weeks. But like, right. I'm like, okay, why don't we get to see Uncle John die? Why don't we get to see this other lady counselor die? Why don't mm-hmm. we get to see Rob die? Oh, are you talking about lesbian counselor Diane, who is played by Carol Martin Vines? Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> who you literally, again, would be forgiven for forgetting was even in this movie because we saw her, I think, in the opening scene where we're just kind of wandering through camp. But yeah, has a not been in this movie the entire fucking time <laughs> no and so when we find her body i'm like wait a minute that mm-hmm. she looks familiar but <laughs> sure. yeah so 
Molly, in in between these sequences, during the run through the woods, we got a brief scuffle. Angela got cut a couple of times. Molly ends up falling off basically a one foot rock ledge and Angela leaves her for dead, which Angela really I expected more of you at this point. <laughs> so apparently in the uh, script for this, that was just the end of Molly. Like Molly was left oh, for dead. OK, and then we needed a stinger. I, well, but here's the thing, though, because Molly's not in the third movie. Okay, 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 wait, here's the thing. So on mm-hmm. this Blu-ray, there is a bonus scene called What Happened to Molly. Wait, is that what it's called? Oh, okay, so we're acknowledging it. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's like a fan-made thing, and it's horrible oh. because basically it looks like new footage. It looks like it's shot like the Blair Witch Project, honestly, from like the mid-90s. Uh, okay. And you just, it just kind of like, it's 50 seconds long, and the camera kind of pans up, and you see a fence, and all of a sudden you see like a skeleton tied to and stuck to the fence and i guess that's supposed to be molly boo that was not worth putting on this blu-ray no. <laughs> i mean by all means do fan service films broaden out this world have fun with it but also that sounds like garbage come yeah. on folks you can do better than that it's not worth it but uh, nevertheless uh, i'm sorry before we even get to molly's death because yeah so molly's <laughs> left for dead but then we have to kill one more person in this movie no, I'm talking about Diane. We already talked about her. Oh, sorry. Because you jumped oh, ahead. I'm sorry. I was jumping ahead to the woman in the car. <laughs> oh, the woman in the car. Yes, who was literally credited as the woman in the truck. She's played by Jill Jane Clemens. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is mildly amusing, right? Because first Angela ends up flagging her down. She gets in the car. But of course, she says a bunch of rude things. So Angela has to kill her. And then she just takes her hat. It's very showgirls. She takes the (laughs) cowboy hat. And now she's driving and she picks up Molly, who we then, you know, do our series of jump cuts as Molly is screaming and we go to credits. But Noker wanted to call attention to the fact that Molly is called partner by Angela when she picks her up. It's a cowboy colloquialism. Yeah. But also, you know, again, if you're doing a gentle queer reading between Molly and Angela, hey, partner, howdy, partner. So, yes. Okay, I can see that. But the problem is she, well, I guess I was going to say she kills her, but I guess we don't you know don't that because we haven't seen the 50 second uh, fan made video of what happened to Molly. <laughs> That could just be anybody's skeleton trace. Who knows? It could be another one of the 36 campers we never got to meet. <laughs> I am a little surprised because, yes, yeah, so because in the third, I didn't rewatch the third movie because I didn't want to have it like stuck in my head because I figured it'd be too similar. But mm-hmm. we moved to a different camp and we don't have Molly. So Molly is essentially dead between these films or missing in action. Well, and I would be more okay with that if these weren't written and filmed back to back because I'm kind of like, oh, well. Why wasn't Fritz Gordon slash Michael Hitchcock like, okay, I'm going to have this final girl carry over into the next film? Mm-hmm. Or Friday the 13th part to it and just kill her as the first kill in the third film. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, look, this movie, super low budget, can't even figure out what, how much it costs. Uh, it's rush job, direct mm-hmm. video. So it is, it's not a perfect movie, clearly. <laughs> no, but it is fun. Yeah, it's very fun. I mean, honestly, yeah, if I would have rented this in the video store in 1988, uh, I would have been pleased with this. Well, I think you'd be surprised by it too, right? Like you would go in thinking it was going to be more of the same, which sounds like that was the intention originally. Right. But I have to give them props for acknowledging it's 1987 when we're making this for a 1988 release. Slashers? They're mostly done at this point, so let's poke fun at them. Let's have a little bit of horror comedy. 
and barring student bodies we hadn't done too much of this before so it feels fresh yeah it's interesting you know talking about like a pre-scream a pre-new nightmare horror landscape right and you're right Mm -hmm. we had student bodies i will also gently throw in friday the 13th part six jason lives it's correct yeah i wouldn't call it like a horror comedy but you know like there's definitely like meta stuff where aspects of like yeah y'all we know what slashers are doing right now we know it's (laughs) old here's some refreshing shit kind of yeah so, yeah, I, I, I commend this film for that. And it, a lot of, like, the where it's rough around the edges are kind of part of its charm for me. Oh, 100%. Yeah, the fact that this is a clear, low-budget effort that we are trying to make something. You know, we're, we're obviously doing a cash-in. That's why we're making two at once. Because yeah. <laughs> we're trying to stretch that dollar in a Hellraiser-friendly kind of way. I, you know what? I respect the hustle. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I will stop saying 100% because I think I said a thousand times this episode, but yes. <laughs> you know what? You 100% did. I 100%. <laughs> but no, yeah, I am in agreement with you. And that's why it's a three out of five for me. I mean, like, like, this is not high quality cinema. It's not high art. But Mm-mm. this movie has a personality to it, which is more than I can say for a lot of those cash grab slasher sequels from the same time period. It's true. I'm not going to throw down on some of the less inspired horror films that we were getting from the time. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you look at what comes out in and around this time period, there's some pretty, we'll say uninspired. Yeah. Uninspired yeah. films in the horror genre. And at least this one is taking a swing, trying something a little different. Yeah. And I agree. I think this would be very surprising. You know, if you're thinking, Oh, I'm shooting another, like a camp slasher movie, just like that first one. It's like, Oh no, this one's like, it's poking fun at itself, at its own franchise at other franchises. It's not, particularly smart but at least Mm -hmm. it feels fun yeah it's amusing (laughs) yeah um okay everyone well that has been sleepaway camp to unhappy campers and uh before we announce that we're covering next week uh just some quick housekeeping to get out of the way if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterbox to keep track of all the films we've covered Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers and tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you love us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, we would love a review with that rating. Um, mm. I love seeing y'all give us five stars, but I love also seeing why you're giving us five stars. <laughs> yeah, it's just fun. It's a little something different. You know, we also love to hear from you. So drop us a line. Yes. And if you really want to get in touch with us, um, you should uh, go to our Patreon and get more content by going to patreon.com slash so yeah if you go and sign up today you will get uh, on top of uh roughly 257 hours of bonus content uh Ooh. this month's new episodes we will have episodes on uh discussion of horror tropes that gotta go and episodes on meg to the trench a24's talk to me the last voyage of the demeter and to tie in with the last voyage of the demeter our audio commentary for the month will be on bram stoker's dracula the coppola version God, I hate you so much for having to keep saying that. It's, you picked it. <laughs> no, just call it Bram Stoker's Dracula and be done with it. Maybe there's another Bram. It's fine. You know what? It's fine. <laughs> and Joe. Mm-hmm. Next week. Oh, I know you're excited for this one. So, yeah. What are we covering next week? Oh, boy. I've been waiting to cover this film for a long time. And it's going to tee up 
partially what we're going to spend the entire month of September talking about, Trace. Mm -hmm. So we are easing our way into a theme month by talking about some sexy shenanigans in Stoker. 2013 yes written by queer icon wentworth miller and mm -hmm. directed by park chan wook oh yes. i love this movie so much i think to this date it's his only english language film um yes yes check back with me on that next week uh nevertheless <laughs> uh i've seen this once and i did really like it but it mm -hmm. it's a movie that i think merits multiple viewings yeah, and also, ironically enough, our second Nicole Kidman from this month. Yeah, I guess that's our theme, huh? <laughs> August, brought to you by Nicole Kidman and her AMC commercials. Oh my god, uh, I, yes. Uh, well, anyway, until next week, everyone, we can cross out Sleepaway Camp to Unhappy Campers. Indeed, and cross out Horror Queers. I feel